Good morning. My name is Kyle, and I am one of the pastors here. If you're just joining us, we are in a series in um, looking at the Old Testament theophanies. Theophanies is just a fancy word to mean when God appeared as a human in places in the Old Testament. And so we are, we're looking at those because they give us um, a sense of how to anticipate and prepare for the coming of God in Jesus Christ. And as we anticipate and prepare for the ultimate coming of God in Jesus Christ, we are looking at these to see how to do that. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there are Bibles for you on the side. You can feel free to get up and grab one. If you don't know where the book of Judges is, which is where we are, um, where this passage is that we're going to be looking at, I want to invite you to open to Judges. And if you don't know where that is, that's okay. We all start somewhere. And there's a um, table of contents for you in the front of your Bible. So just, just look up there and it'll give you a page number. Then go to chapter 13 and start at the beginning. Well, uh, I'm going to pray, so um, that's especially your clue if you want to get up and sneak and grab a Bible. You can do that. There's nothing in the Bible that says you cannot open your eyes or move during prayer. Did you know that? Unbelievable, I know. But I'm going to pray for us, and I'll, I'll, everybody else, we're closing our eyes so they can get their Bibles, though, okay? All right. God, we do ask that you would come in all your power, uh, that you would show us great things, uh, from your word. Most of all, we ask that you would show us the most wonderful thing of all, and that is who you are and what you have done, especially as you have ultimately revealed yourself to us in Jesus Christ. We ask these things for his sake. Amen. Well, um, Victor Hugo's novel Les Miserables is, of course, very, very famous, and it's famous because of the musical mainly and then the movie, right? But, uh, but the novel is, is ranked as one of the top novels in history. And one of the things that it's about is it's really about the history of France. Uh, in fact, uh, Victor Hugo spins, I'm glad they didn't do this in the mu musical because it would not be as appealing to us. He spends like some 900 pages uh, talking about on these like interludes. One of the longest interludes is, is on the Battle of Waterloo and how... Um, how that, how, uh, you know, uh, the France was defeated there and that kind of thing. And at the Battle of Waterloo, what he's doing in all that is he's trying to say, like, look, while the, um, while the revolution and revolt was stopped here, it still, it still has ramifications and floods up in all kinds of ways other than, than this battle. Like, this wasn't the end. And then we get to zoom in and we see how in, against the backdrop of this massive societal upheaval and the June revolts and things like that, there's personal pain and struggle. Like, like a, a woman who can't feed herself and her child and is forced into prostitution. Or a girl who is orphaned um, against the backdrop of, of all the societal, societal upheaval and unrest and chaos, there's still these stories of very personal and private pain. And it's always like that. Do you know that? It's always like that. And we actually see that in the first two verses this, uh, of Judges 13. Judges 13, uh, 
1 says, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. If you know anything about the book of Judges, it is a, a spiral into chaos and into darkness. Uh, the people of Israel continue to worship the other gods, and then God... Uh, and the gods of the Philistines. And then what God does is God says, okay, do you want to be ruled by the Philistines, the Philistines' gods? Do you want to be like a Philistine? I'll just give you into their hands so you can be like a Philistine. It's punishment fit the crime. And because of this like moral uh, decay, then there becomes, they end up in like political and economic slavery. And I think there's a principle here for us, actually. Whenever we see kind of social unrest, societal unrest, uh, like the fabric of communities breaking down, we tend to look out there, don't we, for the problems. And yet, the book of Judges would at least have us first and foremost start looking in here. In fact, Romans 1, right? Because of idolatry, because they failed to worship God and give him thanks, then God hands them over all kinds of things like sexual immorality and slander, hatred of others. It's punishment fit the crime. Well, this is the situation of the book of Judges, but against against all the societal chaos and unrest, we find that there's also stories of very personal and private pain. In verse 2, we're introduced to this couple. We don't know much about them. We know that they're from Zorah. We know that they're Danites. There's a man. His name is Manoah. We don't know anything about the wife, except for the fact that, quote, she was barren and had no children. It's a very quiet pain, and we don't talk about it much but it's all around us, and it's throughout this room. I'm talking about the pain of infertility. One out of every six couples of childbearing age, one out of every six struggles with and suffers from some form of infertility. And if you're older than 35, those numbers increase to one in three. You see, we often think, we often assume that they just aren't trying or don't want kids. But that's actually usually not the case at all. And we don't talk about it, and we suffer, and oftentimes we suffer alone. But I want you to know you're not alone. Many of us have been through it. Many of us suffer from it. And the Bible is clear about it. And by the way, those are, just the psych- those are just the physiological causes. Those numbers just reflect the physiological causes that don't even actually take into account the sociological causes. causes. Like how the percentage of singles in, uh, in 1940 in our society was 16%. Singles ages 25 to 34. Uh, I'm sorry, in 1970. Today, that's up to 46%. Like, 25 to 34-year-olds being single, it was only 16% of the society 
1970. And now it's 46%. See, a lot of us, a lot of us struggle with the dream of married with kids as we watch it kind of slip away. It's a pain that many people feel. This couple feels that pain. I mean, most of us, I think, can relate to this story, right? We live in a world of increasing like societal chaos and unrest. I mean, just think about, just think about like the technological revolution, okay? That, now this is, a, like, we went from, in a period of a generation, basically, having no computers, to having computers, to having personal computers, to having connected computers, to having computers in our pockets, and what's next? Like computers in our skin? I mean, most of this happened in my life. In my lifetime, we went from like in the 80s, people may have a computer at home. In the 90s, AOL. Mid-2000s, smartphones. Now it's everywhere. I mean, people say, get this, and this is like, has so many like benefits, but it also brings like a lot of questions, like what's gonna happen to our world? Like what's gonna happen to the labor market? What's gonna happen as jobs become more and more and more mobile? What's gonna happen to our communities? Think about this, they estimate that some 50% of activities, 50% of activities can right now be done away with just by applying already proven technological advances. That's not even like technological advances that we haven't discovered yet. These are ones that are tried and true. And so there's a lot of questions about like what's gonna happen? What's this gonna bring about? And we're in the midst of, of a, com a complete like revolution. And, and, and there's, also, uh, there's also questions about like what's gonna happen in the university? A lot of you have that question. What's going to happen to the college? Uh, we're in the midst of lots of change. And, 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 you know, we like are wondering, like, with all this technological stuff, like, what's, how about cyber warfare and elections? And we're sitting in the midst of an impeachment trial. I mean, we are in the midst of a rapid and huge uh, huge experience of like societal chaos and unrest. And we just don't know what's going to happen. And yet, there are a lot of us that are like, I can't even think about the effects on the labor market because I wake up every day with chronic pain. I can't even think about like an impeachment trial because, because I'm battling with, with depression, I'm battling infertility. And so against like all these kind of macro problems that we face and questions, there's also like the personal pain. When there are these kind of macro problems and the personal pain, what do we need? You know, it's 
been in the places in history when society is seeming to go through the biggest transformations, the fall of the Roman Empire, war, uh, the, the end of the feudal system, World War II, the 1960s. In all these cases, the church has rediscovered afresh the grace of God. It was Augustine at the end of the Roman Empire. It was Martin Luther at the end of the feudal system. It was Karl Barth during World War II. And it was, I know we don't like to talk, say this, but we need to, it was the charismatic movement in the 70s that realized that God's grace comes irrespective of who you are and what you are and is poured out on people. And there's a rediscover afresh of God's grace in each of these places, when society is in the midst of all this chaos and all unrest, because that's what we need most. What we find in this text is the grace of God. And we see it in three ways. We see it in God's initiative, we see it in God's promise, and we see it in God's self-disclosure. First, we see it in God's initiative. Any reader of the book of Judges will note that there is this cycle that keeps happening, uh, and it's a pattern. So first, Israel turns from God, the one true God, uh, and they worship uh, idols, other gods. And then what happens is that God hands them over to a foreign power. They're ruled by a foreign power for a while, and they feel the suffering from that. And then in the midst of all that suffering, they cry out to God for deliverance. And then God raises up a judge or a deliverer, a savior. And that judge comes and he saves them. And then while the judge is alive, everything is okay, but then the judge dies and people turn back to the same thing. They turn back to the idols and the cycle starts all over again. It's like this vicious cycle. And here we have, at the end of chapter 12, a judge dies. And then at the beginning of chapter 13, we have the, the pattern, except one thing is missing. It says that the people again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and God hands them over to the Philistines for 40 years. But you know what we don't hear about? We don't hear about them crying out to God. There's no crying out to God. It's like absent. Why do they not cry out to God? Because they have become so used to their slavery that they think it's normal. I maybe have told you this story before about my friend who we pranked in high school and we put a dead bird in his car. Do you know the story? You need to know the story. So we put a dead bird in my friend's car, and, uh, and he, he sat with that dead bird in his car for weeks during May at the end of the school year. And finally, we, you know, we couldn't let it go anymore, and we were like, Josh, have you checked under your seat lately? Like, there's a dead bird in your car. And he goes, and he checks, and he's like, he's like no, uh, we, we said first, we were like, your car kind of smells. He's like, no, we got the banana peel out. And, uh, and I was like, no, like, check under your seat. And like, sure enough, there's a dead bird. But he didn't even notice it for like two weeks because he had become so used to the smell of the carcass and the environment that he didn't even notice it. You know, we can be like that too, though, can't we? We become so used to our sin and the wretched smell of the carcass of our own hearts that, that we don't even ask for deliverance because we think it's normal. We just say, like, 
I'm just really passionate. Or I just notice details. Or, you know, I, I just really like to get along with people. And we start stop crying out for deliverance from our sins. Israel stopped crying out for deliverance. And yet, yet, God didn't wait for them. Verse 3, the angel of the Lord appeared. Because you see, that's how it is with God. See, Israel wasn't looking for salvation, but salvation was looking for Israel. Isaiah 65, 1, I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. To a nation who did not call my name, I said, here I am. Here I am. And when the fullness of time had come, when the fullness of time had come and we weren't looking for God and we weren't crying out for God, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law. This is God's gracious initiative. He doesn't wait for us. He comes to us. Why? He comes to us because he sees us. Look at verse 3. The angel of the Lord appears to this woman and he says to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children. He sees her. I wonder if she had ever been seen before. Her husband doesn't see her. He won't listen to what she says. He doesn't believe what she says. In fact, in verse 11, he simply refers to her as this woman. You know who else didn't see her? The, her whole community and the oral tradition. Because we lost her name. We don't even know her name. And I wonder if she even saw herself. You know, the angel has to say to her in verse 3, Behold, look. Who do you say that to? Look, behold. You say it to someone who isn't looking. Who isn't beholding? Look, behold, you are barren and you have no children. Did she even see herself? But he sees her. God sees her. He sees her plight and he sees her pain and he sees yours as well. See, some of you have been suffering from something that is quiet and silent and you wonder, does God see me? Does anyone see me? Maybe you've told some people about it, but, but even that, you wonder if they've forgotten because they haven't picked it back up or they, they, they don't notice it or they act like it isn't there. Listen, God sees you. He sees your plight and he sees your pain. And that's why he comes. Just like he saw her plight and he saw her pain, he comes because he sees her and he sees Israel, and he sees their plight, and he sees their pain, even when they're not crying out. He comes because he sees, and he also comes because he loves. At the end of this, uh, at the end of this story, Manoah cries out, her husband, we, surely, we shall surely die, for we have seen God. Manoah's like, look, God has sent this angel to destroy us. And his wife says in verse 23, 
If the Lord had meant to kill us, he, he would not have accepted a burnt offering or a grain offering at our hands or shown us all these things or announced to us such things as these. In other words, God didn't show us these things because he meant to, to bring calamity to us. He showed us these things because he came to provide for us. He, he cares for us. He, he's here because, because he loves us. And this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might have life through him. And God showed his love for us in this. While we were sinners, while we were weak, when we were his enemies, Christ died for us. See, we weren't looking for him, but he was looking for us. I heard a story, an amazing story, about a young boy. And this young boy was carrying some, um, some crates down the side of the road one day. And a neighbor who happened to be an itinerant preacher came up and he saw him carrying these crates and he said, hey, what you doing, you know? Well, I'm, I'm going to build something. He's like, oh, what's building? And it turns out that they were going to build a stagecoach. He was going to build this little thing, but the, the man said like, well, well, let's make it better. And every day for two weeks he'd come and he'd build the stagecoach with him. And he'd only work for like an hour and then he'd stop. And then the boy would say, well, wait, we've got so much left to do. We've got to keep going. He said, no, no, let's talk a bit. And come back the next day. I'll be back. Talk a bit the next day. And slowly he begins to tell him the story about Jesus Christ and his love for him. That boy wasn't looking to be saved. But by the end of those two weeks, that boy realized that God loved him. And sent this man into his life to preach the gospel to him, the good news, and he was saved. You know, that's how it always is. I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew he moved my soul to seek him seeking me. It was not I that found a Savior true. No, I was found of thee. You did not choose me, Jesus said, but I chose you and appointed you that you should bear fruit, fruit that should last. See, some of you are in here today and you're seeking God and you're wondering, God, do you see me? God, do you love me? I've got some news for you. If you're seeking God in here today, it's because he's already been seeking you. And it's because he sees you. And it's because he loves you. And that's why you're here this morning. So you don't have to ask anymore. He moved first because he loves us. And this is the grace that we see in this text. First, we see God's grace in his initiative. Second, though, we see God's grace in his promise. The angel of the Lord comes and he, he says to the woman, verse 3, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but... Oh, don't you love that but... You are barren, and you have not born children, but, but, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Though you haven't been crying out for me, though you haven't been praying to me, though you aren't even looking for me, guess what? I know your pain, I know your hurts, I also know your hopes and your dreams, and I have come to meet those. Because I'm the one who can. God comes to us and he makes a promise. 
promise to forgive us all our sins. A promise about a blood that is so rich and so deep that it can wash even the guilt of a conscience away. God comes to us and he makes a promise, you are my beloved child in whom I'm well pleased. God comes to us and he makes a promise, because I live, you shall also live forever. And he says, the water that I give, it satisfies. I have come to satisfy all your deepest longings, even the ones that you don't even realize you have. He comes to this woman and he makes a promise. And the promise is of a son. And the son is not, notice, just a promise for her and for her husband. It's a promise for all Israel. Look at verse 5. He goes on, he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. You see, this was not going to be a normal son. This was going to be a deliverer. You know, oftentimes we think that, that salvation and God's promises to us are only about our personal fulfillment. That God's promise and salvation to us in Jesus, he came just so that we could actually like actualize our best self. Listen, God came for all those things, and God came for much more. The promises that he makes, see, God's in the business of rescue, and he's going to rescue you and me from everything that destroys and enslaves his creation. He came, 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And this is what his first promise was all about. Genesis 3.16, I will put enmity between you and the woman, that is the serpent, Satan, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, but you shall bruise his, and you shall bruise his heel. See, he shall come and crush your head. This is a promise about Jesus coming to undo all the works of the devil. And what he is about is about cosmic restoration. That's his promise. Behold, I am making all things new. And that promise, I want you to notice. I want you to notice two things about this promise. The first thing I want you to notice is that it is an unconditioned promise. There's no if, ands, or buts. There's simply a behold, you shall bear a son. God's promises to us are yes and amen in Jesus Christ, and they are unconditioned. We don't do anything to deserve them. We don't do anything for them, not contingent upon us. They simply are. And yet, this unconditioned promise also has ethical implications for how we live. Notice, it goes on to say that the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. Now, a Nazarite is a kind of strange, obscure uh, thing in the Old Testament. It has to do with someone who is set apart for God and under a vow of se a, a special um, service to God. And a Nazarite, actually, because they were uh, set apart for God, they had to abstain from certain things like uh, products made with grapes. They had to abstain from cutting their hair. Uh, they also could not get near or touch a, a carcass, a corpse. Right? And this, even though the details of that were a little fuzzy on, like why are those things there, one thing is clear. The person is wholly devoted to God for a special task, a special service. And this child would be wholly devoted to God for the task of delivering Israel. 
So I want you to get this for a second. Think about this. God makes a promise. You will have a child. I will give you a child. And then the immediate implication is, and you will give that child wholly over to me. It's a claim. You see, the unconditioned promise has a claim and that claim starts, has implications right now. In verses 4 and verses 14, twice we're told that Manoah's wife has to abstain from wine and unclean things. So what we see here is an unconditioned promise, you shall conceive and bear a son with a serious implication, therefore be careful, verse 4. Uh, now we know this, right? Think about it like this. If you were told, picture someone, maybe yourself, this will be a th fun thought experience. And you were told, you actually, we all kind of want the story, you actually are an heir of royalty. You just didn't know it. And all the other people have died. Uh, and guess what? When you turn a certain age, like 25 or whatever, all these things are going to come to you. Now, if you're already 25, then 35. If you're already 35, 45. You're already, you know, just, just add five years to your life right now. Whatever the case, the reality is it's a promise that in the future you are going to be like the inheritor of all this stuff. Like huge fortune. And it's unconditioned. It's just going to come to you. It will happen. Yet that's going to have a radical implications for how you live every day right now. Will it not? Is that going to change your outlook on everything and how you live and what you do? Same with the promises of God. See, we want to substitute or erase the therefore. You shall conceive and bear a son, therefore be careful. We want to say you shall conceive and bear a son if you be careful. Don't we? But God doesn't. See, it's, we want to say if I do enough, if I believe enough, then I'll have... Uh, then I'll be accepted, then I'll be acceptable. But God's promise is you are accepted and acceptable, therefore live like it. Or what we want to do, if we don't want to substitute the therefore for an if, we just want to erase the therefore altogether. You are accepted and acceptable, beloved and beloved. Period. Not therefore live as my beloved son. But you see, the unconditioned, gratuitous promises of God make massive claims on our lives. Promises like, you are united to him in his death. Implication, let not sin reign in your mortal body. Promises like, you were bought with a price. Implication, honor the Lord with your body. Promises like, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Implication, do not fear. Promises like, salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believe. Implication, cast off works of darkness. Promises like, Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. Implication, draw near with full assurance. The promises of God, the unconditioned, gratuitous, gracious promises of God have massive implications and make claims on all of our lives. This is God's grace. We see it, we see it through this initiative, we see it through this promise, and finally, we see it through God's own self-disclosure. 
there's this narrative tension throughout this passage. And the tension is, what's the identity of this angel? Who is this visitor? All right, that's the narrative tension. And we are told something in verse 3 that the characters in the story are not told. We are told that it is the angel of the Lord. Uh, and Manoah's wife, she starts to get this. You can see this in verse 6. She says, a man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. It did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. She starts to get it, but Manoah, he's a little more slow on the uptake. He's kind of skeptical. So he asked skeptically in verse 11, are you the man who spoke to this woman? But then what we see is this progressive unveiling, uh, this self-disclosure. The, the messenger starts to drop clues as to his identity. It's kind of like, it's like our favorite movie, Finding Dory. And at this point, all the kids came back. Finding Dory. You know, Dory has, she suffers from uh, short-term memory loss. And she gets lost in a, uh, an undertow. She gets near the undertow. It takes her away. She doesn't know who she is, where she is. She doesn't know her family. She doesn't know anything. And she is like, she is so far away from any civilization because she is by, uh, well, it's the aquarium up at uh, San, uh, Santa Cruz or San Jose or up there. Anyway, she goes up there. And then, but certain things start to happen that trigger her memory. Like first she is in this aquarium and she starts to see this whirlpool and it reminds her of the undertow. And then she starts to see like fish that look like her family. And then all of a sudden she gets out and she actually sees the undertow and she's like, that's it. Now I know who I am and now I know where I'm from. That kind of thing happens here. Except it's not a happenstance. It's actually a self-disclosure. The, verses 15 through 20, the angel starts dropping clues. The first clue is there in verse 16. When the angel actually refuses the hospitality of Manoah. But he says to him, verse 16, If you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. I mean, if you cook, I'm not going to eat it. But if you cook, why don't you offer it to the Lord as a sacrifice? Well, Manoah still doesn't get it. He asked, like, verse 17, what's your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. What, what's your name? Now, at this point, all of us who have been here for the last couple of weeks should have a trigger. Our ears should perk at that point because we remember Jacob wrestling with this strange visitor. And Jacob asked him, what's, what's your name? What's your name? But he wouldn't tell him his name. And that gives us the second clue. Verse 18, he says, why do you ask my name? Seeing it is wonderful. Now that's a weird answer. Why do you ask my name? Seeing it is What does he mean by that? Well, where else does the Bible use this word wonderful? Psalm 139, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know, when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. The psalmist is talking about God's absolute sovereignty, his absolute control over all things, and his absolute infinite knowledge of all things. And then he says, as I think about this, it's just too much. It's too big. 
It's too transcendent. It's too wonderful. Why do you ask me my name, seeing that it is too much, too big, too transcendent, too lofty for you? Well, then we're given the third clue. Verse 19, Manoah takes the young goat, and with the grain offering, he offers it on a rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. Why do you ask my name, seeing it is too wonderful? And he offers to the Lord who works wonderful. My name is wonderful to the Lord who works wonders. And then the Lord works a wonder. The fourth clue, verse 20. And when the flame went up towards heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. And they get it. Verse 20. Manoah and his wife fall on their faces. In verse 22, Manoah says, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. You know, he's right to think that way. Do you know that? Exodus 33, 22. No one can see my face and live. We have seen God and we shall surely die, and yet they are, don't die. Why not? Because this is a gracious self-disclosure. Lamentations 3.22 because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. But we could, should be consumed. For our God is a consuming fire. But because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. So here's the question I think that this raises. I mean, this text ends like, well, it ends like the whole like TV show series Lost. Right? There's like all these like unanswered questions. Uh, questions like, how could Manoah see God's face and live? No one can see my face and live. Questions like, why does the angel of the Lord, why does God call himself the angel of the Lord? And why is the angel of the Lord referred to as God? And what's going on with that? We know this angel of the Lord figure. This isn't the first time the angel of the Lord appears. Throughout the Old Testament, we see these appearances of this angel. First to Hagar, then at the burning bush, and then in the, in the pillar of fire. We saw it with Joshua before, um, before Jericho and the battle. And every time, it's this kind of human figure, but it's God coming as a human figure. And the angel seems to speak for God, and yet is distinct from God. And so it's, it's this figure who appears in the form of human, is distinct from God, and yet appears as God, and, and says and does things like they are God. And you wonder, like, what is going on? Alec Motier, who's a good Old Testament commentator, he writes, it seems to be that by means of the angel of the Lord, God can come among people safely. The angel is revealed as a merciful accommodation whereby the Holy Lord can be among sinful people. For, where, for were he to go amongst them himself, his presence would consume them. The angel of the Lord is that mode of divinity whereby the Holy Lord can keep company with sinful people. Does that sound familiar to you? See, there's only one other place in Scripture where we see someone who is identified with God and yet is distinct from God. And in the beginning was the Word. 
And the word was with God and the word was God. See, what we have to see is that this is not an angel of the Lord. This is the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord is a manifestation of the pre-incarnate Christ. Jesus Christ before he took on flesh. And that's what makes this a gracious self-disclosure. Because you see, what this text teaches is if, when his people need it, when it requires it, God will even become and take on the form of a human to save them. And that's actually what happens because, you know, Samson, this child that was born, he wasn't the best deliverer. And Samson, he was actually a picture of Israel. Commentators will show that as Samson goes, so goes Israel. The same thing that's happening to Israel is happening to Samson. Why? Because Israel was supposed to be the light to the nations. They were supposed to be the one who brought salvation to the nations. But yet, what happened? The rescue boat that went out to the world, it caught fire. And it was in need of rescue itself. So what happens when the rescuers are in need of rescue? What happens when, when Israel is doomed? And the world is doomed. The one true Israelite comes, Jesus Christ. The child who was born to be our deliverer. And he breaks the cycle. And he breaks the cycle. That's grace. Lean on it. Believe in it. Trust it. Hope it. Rejoice. For he has come and he will come again in glory for us and for our salvation. Amen.